Fusion Patrol is a listener-supported podcast. Find out how you can help support us at patreon.com slash fusion patrol. This is the Fusion Patrol podcast. Each week, we look at a different science fiction TV episode or movie and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm Simon. And tonight we are looking at the 1981 BBC one-off production of John Wyndham's Day of the Triffids. Serial production. All right, serial. Serial. I I think it was one-off because it's not... Like Doctor what Who, you, but what yes, you, yes, yeah. you would call a mini-series on the yes. side of the pond. Yes, yes. Six parts. We would call it a series because that's kind of quite long for us. Yeah, so it, it's, uh, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, a, it's based on a book. <laughs> <laughs> Triffids are a plant bioengineered by the Soviet Union to be an efficient fuel additive. They are unique in that they can move about and can sting animals to death or, to a lesser intensity, blind them. Bill Mason works on one of the Triffid farms, and he accidentally was blinded by a Triffid sting. Now he recuperates in a hospital, waiting to see if his sight has been saved. Sadly for the bandaged Bill, on the night before he gets his bandages off, he misses the greatest light show the world will ever see. An astral phenomena bathes the Earth for 24 hours in an amazing light show in the night sky. But there's no such thing as a free lunch. Neither are there free light shows. Because the next day, everyone who saw the show is blind. Bill, now one of the few sighted people left in the world, meets up with Joe and begins their adventures in a world turned on its head. Oh, and the Triffids have escaped, and they're hunting down blind humans like a feast. Bill and Joe first meet up with a group planning to go to the country and set up a polygamous compound. Blind women can produce sighted babies, and so they must breed up a new generation of humans to take back the world. Bill and Joe decide to join in. But then... They are captured by Coker, a sighted man who feels that everyone should stay in the city, helping the blind get food until help arrives. Since they refuse to do so on their own, they are imprisoned and chained to work gangs. Bill and Joe are separated. A disease begins to kill off everyone, and Bill manages to leave his work group after they all die. He cannot find Joe, but he finds the name of the place where the group had been intending to go, Tyson. And along with a repentant coker, who also saw all his blind people die of disease, they head out to find it. They do, in fact, find Tysum, but the group has already splintered into two factions. Those that remained at Tysum felt that good Christian values and morals must be maintained, and the two groups agreed to split. Coker tries to convince them that they cannot just rely on God's grace and must start doing things to save themselves. But they refuse, and the pair leave looking for the other group. Bill hopes that Joe is with them. They cannot find the group, and Coker decides to return and try to make them see sense. 
But Bill remembers a place on the South Downs where Joe mentioned her self-sufficiency-minded friends had a farm with a well and wind power and a generator and that it might make a good retreat. He travels there and along the way rescues a young girl, Susan, from the Triffids. Bill finds Joe and they are reunited. Soon Bill goes back to check on Coker and Tysom, but the group is dead of the disease. There is no sign of Coker. Bill and Joe spend six good years together with her two blind friends. In that time, Susan becomes as a daughter to them and grows up, and they have a child, as do her friends. Good years, that is, save for the fact that they are under constant siege by thousands of triffids. Coker arrives via helicopter. He survived the disease at Tysom and found the other splinter group. They've settled on the Isle of Wight and freed the island of Triffids. Others are colonizing the Channel Islands. He invites them to come live with him. He especially needs Bill, a man with bioscience training on Triffids, to help make the fight to retake the Earth. They decide to go, but first they want to spend one more summer on their idyllic farm. Alas, the next day a tank pulls up with representatives of the newly established and not elected government, they are setting up the New World Order. They are apportioning land to sighted people and requiring them to take ten blind people for each sighted person as effectively slave labor. The sighted will be feudal barons under the authority of the government. Just one problem. Only two sighted adults are allowed. Susan will have to come back to the HQ with the soldiers and be assigned to suitable duties. That night... They get the soldiers drunk, sabotage the tank, and escape, heading for the Isle of Wight. Okay, well, uh, Day of the Triffids uh, by John Wyndham, who uh, some people consider to be a uh, particularly notable British science fiction author, and and some people consider a bit of a hack. Um <laughs> <laughs> so some people some people do think his his books are pretty hackneyed. So um it, it's an unusual dichotomy there. Um I will say this, although I looked for it and I could not find it, I absolutely positively have Day of the Triffids on my bookshelf somewhere and and read it and read it. Yes, many years ago. And this is pretty darn faithful to it. Like, there's and, not and a lot that Wind, I remember. Is Windham, a, is Windham a hack or is he a. I'm going to ask you that question. <laughs> I have never read a John Windham novel, so I'm not the person to ask. I, I'm, I'm, pretty, uh, I'm pretty tolerant. Um, I enjoyed the book. So uh, is, he, is he one of the greats? I'm not sure. He's got some interesting stories out there. I mean, Day of the Triffids is probably his most famous. Um, the Midwich Cuckoos is probably the second most famous book of his, which uh, anyone who's seen the movies will know as Village of the Damned. Um, or the two movies known as Village of the Damned that, that, that were based on his novel. And the rest of his work is not well known here anyway, as far as I know. He said, I mean, he certainly produces works that get adapted and I mean, I, the the phrase Triffids has kind of entered into the language as a, a, a useful kind of description for any particularly menacing type of or, or uh, voracious kind of plant. 
Because <laughs> right. there's a lot of them, yeah. Yeah. I've not only I've not only managed to not read the Day of the Triffids, I've also not managed to watch the 1962 film or the 2009 TV series or various of many radio adaptations that have been made to it. So people do seem to keep coming back to it. And um, I've also, as you will know, some listeners will know, I'm quite an avid fan of the output of of the audio company Big Finish, Uh who have produced an audio play, Night of the Triffids, a sequel to Day Mm -hmm. of the Triffids. Um, But again, which I have give that a second look. I, I've I've listened to the audio play from Big Finish, so um, it it's um, it's all right. You know, I haven't read the book. I think it's based on a book somebody put out, but um, it, it 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 doesn't. It's not really a direct sequel. I think it's just kind of a few years later on. Mm-hmm. Doesn't involve Bill Mason or anything. It's it's I think mostly in America, as I recall. Um, but it, that way, because I, I remember it because of the American accents. <laughs> in fact, I think Nicola Bryant side. might be starring in it. I'm not sure. <laughs> if not, it's somebody doing a Nicola Bryant as Perry imitation. In it's the... almost certainly Nicola Bryant. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, anyway, so what? Uh, well, what did you uh, what did you think of this as being only exposed to the term Triffid, but never having seen uh, or or been exposed to the actual story? Well, I'll tell you one thing. It felt like an adaptation watching it. So it, it, I, could, I, could, I could almost feel the gaps, if you like, that someone watching this familiar with the book and having more background knowledge to, to what's going on coming into it might have a very different view on this TV series, which I'll grant you is quite atmospheric um in and and that's hugely important in obviously creating this post-apocalyptic environment and you know part of that is the really quite striking music by christopher gunning Mm -hmm. and um it's the, the 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 kind of the the, there's a good set there's a good sense of menace um which i will put down more to the acting and the reacting than i will necessarily to and you know i don't want to be too rude about anyone doing their best in the constraints of 19 well basically just coming out of the 70s so 1970s uh tv but well, we'll put it this way. It was directed to try and avoid showing the Triffids too much. Right. <laughs> or too much of the Triffids, um, which was, you know, a good thing, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm. Even even in the kind of very stylized title sequence, that it looks fine until you see a Triffid sting. The Triffid sting is probably the worst, the worst piece of mm. of the effect because it... It doesn't look like a. It doesn't look like a sting. It looks like somebody beating you with a rubber hose. You know, it it, it, yeah. it yeah, doesn't yeah. it doesn't have that. It's been shot out 
point first, hit the person in the face, it has the more sort of whip effect of it being slapped against the person's face. Which, you know, since we never really see it do a sting in that way, I mean, we just, we do see the kind of the whip effect. It, it's not... Uh, I, I... I I think... Well, I'm not 100% sure. I think I saw this before I managed to get hold of a copy of the the novel. But I'm not... And so this was your first Triffid experience? It's really hard for me to tell. So basically, if this came out in 1981, so I would have been... Well, that would have been just before I went to university... When I got to when I got to university, so I moved to another city, and when I got to university, that is about the time that they started showing Doctor Who on television here in in the Phoenix area. And that led very quickly to some bookstores getting driving up like purchasing Starburst magazine, which was not a American magazine and bringing in all the target novelizations and getting a lot more British science fiction uh, press and stuff. So start picking those things up, start reading about them and start learning about Day of the Triffids. And this bookstore was just basically doing, well, there were a few, but the one that I went to frequented, you know, they were doing the same thing. They would look through it and they go, oh, Day of the Triffids, Quatermass. Oh, bring, you know, see what we can get and either bring in new copies or, or used copies of these books so that they would have them stocked in this relatively good section. So I I don't remember whether somebody brought Triffids over or I found the book on the shelf first. I just can't remember. Um, It, it might be the book. I it sucks not to be able to remember back that far. I mean, it's only, what, 35, 40 I, years? <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. So, but um, but I do remember that whenever I got to the point where I was able to compare the two, that they were pretty darn close. They were, they I were th- pretty I, darn I, close. I can believe that what we see on the screen is taken from the book. I think the thing that, that is missing as as a viewer watching it and this being your your kind of first encounter with it is that the pacing doesn't feel quite right somehow and it feels like there are not that there are unanswered questions because actually the final um i should say this is in six half hour parts and in the final part it's made quite explicit that um there are questions that are unanswered and that's okay what bugs me a little bit is that they weren't being asked right at the beginning I I was asking them but the characters on the screen didn't seem to be asking the same questions which leads you to wonder do they know the answers and I imagine some of those questions are in the book to do with um, things like um, what is causing the disease, for example, um, whether it is actually infectious or not, because we quite quickly jump to 
assumptions. So some of the some of the kinds of nuts and nuts and bolts questions. Um, I don't remember some... anything about the disease from the book. I mean, I know it was happening. I I don't remember them. You know, at the end where he asked the question about, you know, was the disease man-made? I don't remember that. I remember mm-hmm. that they that he towards the end he postulated that the comet might have been some sort of weapon gone yeah, wrong. Just in case we didn't get what all this was about. Yeah. Um and and you know, I think in the book the triffids were made as a vegetable oil substitute, not a fuel oil. Or some sort okay. of you know, amazing vegetable oil, which I guess for frying chips and stuff. But um, <laughs> well, that's kind of neither neither here nor there in a sense. Yeah, but another a man-made catastrophe. Still, it's definitely a, yes. a, an engineered yeah. catastrophe for our for our greed and our, uh, our you know, as opposed to the if if the comet is indeed a weapon, then you know that's our folly as warlike apes but but it uh, just it does it does seem a bit suddenly everyone seems to have radiation sickness in something that is clearly intended to be an allegory about nuclear fallout but there's no obvious reason why they are suffering those symptoms hmm okay and I don't mind that there's an unanswered question I mind that there is an un asked question and it feels like you've missed a bit it feels like at some point those questions were asked and I think that's partly to do with when you make an adaptation you have to make choices about pacing and obviously that's quite difficult when you've only got six half hours to do the whole novel and also obviously the novel seems to cover several years Mm-hmm. But a lot, uh, I mean, a, a huge amount happens in those first few hours after the comet. Right. And to me, a lot, of, so that's, that, a lot of that's the kind of interesting stuff. And, and I, I want to know... I, I want to know why... Why it is, for example, that the radio isn't working. Uh, I want to know why it is that everyone is so debilitated by losing their sight. And that that sounds a kind of um, silly question, but there are some things that obviously you simply cannot do not being sighted Mm -hmm. there are other things that simply take longer and that's the far bigger category and the 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 effect of the effect of that when such a large percentage of the population loses their sight are are really going to be felt but they're not going to be felt straight away necessarily okay well, let me. Let me and, and in the book, okay. you've got more time to do that. But in the in the on the TV, it's like, it's the the small hours of the following morning, and everything has already gone to chaos. So it just seems strange. 
Okay. Um. All right. Let me let me let me talk about the disease for a second before I lose that train of thought. Um, I never saw that as an allegory for radiation sickness. Um, I saw it. Well, I don't think it's an allegory for radiation sickness. <clears throat> it's the symptoms of radiation sickness, isn't it? I, you know, as you say, yes, it it certainly could be the symptoms of radiation sickness. Uh, it it doesn't look like cholera to me, but I'm not a hundred percent sure what cholera looks like. I certainly, up until this view through, and I don't recall anything to the difference um, from the book. But again, I definitely haven't read the book since 1983 or four. Um, I thought that was meant to represent generic epidemic. I mean, the people are, the water is going to stop working. They're, they're, they're probably pooing in their flats and living in their filth and, and sure, you know, again, they're all going to die. Not, but that's not ha- going to happen the day after. No, but that, I thought that, that took that, a little while to start. Well, that, that's kind of hard to tell. Yeah. It, it doesn't actually seem to, to take a while the illness begins almost straight away. And it's three days. It doesn't, it doesn't, with one possible exception, it doesn't seem to affect anyone who is sighted. Ah, now, this is where I was going. <laughs> this is where I was going. When I got to the end of this, and I remember him mentioning the, the illness being possibly man-made, I started thinking about it because that's what I do and then seeing the podcast here. And it occur- that thought occurred to me. Because it was bugging me. It's like, how come Coker didn't die? How come Bill didn't die? How come Joe didn't die? They're they're all exposed to these people who are dying right and left. And if it's contagious, you would think they would die. Right. They weren't asking, is this only is this only people who've looked at the old Christian lady died of it. Good point, yes, and she was cited. That was the only person I can think of who was cited who died of it though. So Eh, maybe it was a different disease that got her. I mean, if you're hanging around a bunch of dead bodies rotting because the disease mm-hmm. is killing everybody else, you know, there's uh, yeah, there are sec- a number of factors. Could, the yeah. ill people could have secondary infections that are causing something. So, I mean, it's still possible. You're right. It does seem to be hitting the blinded people substantially more. Then the question is, how come that didn't affect the people who didn't see it is this a radiation that can only be entered into your body through your eyes because i mean bill was or, there in or, a room and the... you had to be you had to be out in, in it yeah there had to be a sight line for you to be affected by the radiation it's it's a possibility it's a possibility it it is i don't i mean i don't know if i would be asking those questions i myself trying to put myself in this situation um, and then you can talk about the blindness too. And yeah, sure, you ask a lot of questions, uh, but I don't know. But I think I would epi- be. If you have an epidemic, the first question you ask is, "How is this thing transmitted? How the hell do I get out of this town?" Is my first thought. I just assumed it was contagious, and I would be thinking about countryside. But then that was already in my head. I mean, the 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 folks at the university already put that in everybody's head. There's going to be disease. We need to get out of town. You know, uh, Bill said that too. He was talking about cholera and other diseases and who knows what. And they were. Uh, the but university- this was day one. That was the thing that 
Well, I would be thinking about that on day one. I absolutely would be thinking about that on day one. I mean, I've seen enough post-apocalyptic fiction to know that you <laughs> you immediately get out of yeah, town I because it makes you somewhat atypical. And I don't even yeah, like post-apocalyptic fiction. Anyone who wasn't watching all the post-apocalyptic TV series probably wouldn't realize that they were in a post-apocalyptic scenario. They might just think that they had a power cut. Well, they did have a bunch of people like Coker who was like, no, 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 we've got people, you know, we got to stay here and help them until help arrives. So clearly, you know, there are people on the spectrum of how deluded to how bad off the earth is. But they're, but then they're, they're not deluded. They're acting on the best information that is available to them. They're ignorant. But that's entirely understandable because why would you assume this thing affects the whole planet? Why would you assume it affects other cities? Well, I mean, Bill has good reason to. He heard the radio broadcast that said that absolutely everywhere in the world got to see this show over the period of 24 hours. That was on the news the night before when he was in his room. But that's... That's drawing the connection with the... The comet. Comet, which isn't, you know, the, the immediate thing. All right, let me ask this question. Would you go out and look at it? The comet? Yeah. If, if, that, were, if that were a thing that happened tonight. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Totally I, I, I find that to be one of the most compelling terrors of this show to me is the idea that you know darn good and well that if you weren't drugged to sleep or bandaged or something you would absolutely make the time to go out and look at this thing you'd have to i mean what what kind of a slug would you have to be to be sitting there going eh <laughs> i don't want to see a once in a lifetime astronomical event right outside my window <laughs> like, you just you'd have to be quite the quite the piece of work <laughs> not to do that. Now I can see people who have reasons not to like little kids who've gone to sleep and think of all the babies that died on probably the first couple days. Cause they were in yeah. their cribs in their rooms, never saw it, never got affected. And their parents fell up and, and you know, I mean, it, it, it except they wouldn't, they wouldn't die in the first couple of days. This is the thing. I I don't know. You know, when, when somebody is... I, I haven't been around somebody who is blind, and I, I certainly hope not to be one of those people or be around somebody who goes blind. But, you know, if you if you take depictions of the psychological aspects of it, uh, people who get disabilities frequently go into a bit of a funk, um, a helpless funk that... You know, I can't do anything and I'm helpless and, and I want to die. And can you well, imagine if it, everyone you I, knew everywhere was blind? But I, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be something that would kill you within a day. That's, that's what I'm saying. You know, when you, when you have uh, a cataract operation and you're on it, I mean, Bill at the start of this is blind himself and it's a temporary condition but there are but they're not dying of the blindness though they're they're dying from living in places with stairs which is just a dangerous thing or but it's not like 
and Triffids. It's not like that. It's not like you're living in an unfamiliar place where you don't know the stairs are. You know where the stairs are. You know where the, you know where the fridge is and where the water we, tap is. But we saw we saw the guy the in the in his t-shirt and his wife that Bill went into their apartment and he was you know he was the first to give Bill his you know rundown scenario of how bad it's going to be in a few days and he's you know he and his wife were doing okay in their house but then the food's going to run out and sure sure i th- i think i think i think the thing for me was that the speed with which it happened didn't allow for the exploration because in a way this is my this is my favorite kind of science fiction it's it's extrapolating through some kind of disaster or event like this from what we have now how how our institutions and our society would stand up to these big shows i mean it's like it's it's exactly the scenario we've got in in torchwood children of earth which i think is my favorite sci-fi tv series so I'm interested in exploring that stuff, but I think part of it would be how, or, or part, part part of what determines how disastrous it would be would would be how successful or unsuccessful would you be in those first few days at getting organised? Mm-hmm. But it is days; it's not hours, and it... that you know, I think I think there is a chance there, and I think. You would be trying to find the useful people. That wouldn't just be sighted people. That would actually be the registered blind because they've mm-hmm. got a load of people who are actually very capable at dealing with a, one of a my world notes, in which they cannot see. And I would go find teaching. a blind school. Exactly, exactly. They could be teaching, and if you've got time and you could start teaching people how to cope, then. When the food started running out, when the water... I mean, it's the water that's the scary thing. I had... uh, There was a a burst pipe up the road the other day and I had a, a, what, you know, maybe 12, 18 hours without water. And my word, you just suddenly realise how incredibly Mm -hmm. dependent you are on it. So in, in some ways... The speed with which these things can occur, <laughs> you know, is much, much faster than I th- we conceive until something like that happens. Um, I think the, the whole with the water thing is because uh, I've had water. I had a burst pipe in the house and, and was out water and it, it's kind of or they were shut it down for a while. It's like, sure, I can go to the refrigerator and I can get some bottled water or I can get some. I can get some Dr. Pepper or something of that nature. It's when you go to the toilet the first time and you go, oh, there's only the one. There's only this one flush. <laughs> then we're done. Yeah. And then, yeah, then yeah, we yeah. got a problem. <laughs> then, we ha- then we've got a problem. And you, and you think, oh, I know. I know because I've had a problem with the cistern before. I know how to flush it. I'll just get a bucket of water and throw it. And you think, where do I get the water from? Uh-huh. And it, it, it does, the fact that, the you know, I'm in the bathroom standing under the shower thinking, hmm, there's something wrong here. And I finally twig that there's no water in the house. 
And when I'm thinking through the consequences, I'm thinking, oh, I can't wash my hands. Never mind, I'll go and get some water from the kitchen. I think, well, a kitchen tap comes from the same place. <laughs> it takes you a while before, and then you think, oh, maybe I can borrow it from a neighbour. But hang on, the whole street's out. And so then you get the shotgun and you start going after the stores, raiding, because that's how civilization breaks down. <laughs> what is yeah, that for a few hours? And- you go to the river that is, you know, literally two minutes walk. And <laughs> well, isn't that nice? It, yeah, but, you know, we're, we're talking about something that is set in the UK. Okay, I wouldn't drink out of the Thames in the 80s. That's, that's fair enough. London, probably a bad place. Um, but what, you, what you're obviously doing is marshalling the resources that you've got and starting to prioritise things. Whereas what what we seem to be jumping to on screen was that, well, actually, everything has already failed and we're into the disaster planning. And this is where we're getting the kind of right-wing fantasist nutjob <laughs> stuff. And and we're getting Croker, who you seem to dislike, but frankly, who is the hero that this show needs because Bill and Joe are ready to sign up and let Joe pick Bill another couple of wives. I, I don't picture Coker as the the villain of the piece by any stretch of the imagination. I I think that this is an argument between he so all right, maybe he doesn't realize how widespread the problem is. And and this is a failure of communication because Bill should know. Bill heard it. Right? Bill Bill and I think they all put the comment because his doctor told him it was the I'm, comment. I, I'm right? not sure it is pure ignorance. So Bill yes, so, Yeah, yes. but it, okay, so he's in a way he's deluding himself. Or he's either deluding himself or he's ignorant of the problem. I don't understand it. But you do have some people maybe that are, a bit of delusion. They do have some people, Bill in this case, who has a doctor of ophthalmology who is postulating that it was the comet. Um, we, we know Bill heard that the comet was seen by absolutely everyone in the world. So at the very least, when he's there, go, oh, you need to worry about the Triffids. When somebody comes along and says, no, no, the emergency services coming is like, this happened everywhere. You know, we think, I think this happened everywhere. So my questions are how long before, if nobody is there to work it. And I, and I really do feel that if everyone went blind, they would not be getting into their jobs in the morning. Those who were at their jobs would not care about their jobs at that point and would be freaking out and trying to get help. I don't know how automated the services are to say that would phones keep, I mean, today phones would keep working. Electricity would work for a while. Water would work for a while. I don't know how much manual intervention is required every day. I mean, does somebody come in and flip well, on the switch for London to get the power going in 1981? Yeah, I don't yeah. think so. But, you know. Well, no, I, I, think, I think the power would go out without, without, without people to... And, and it would be the same. With, I mean, I'm assuming this is set in 1981 rather yeah, than think, 1951. Yeah, I think, yeah. But even so... I think the degree of intervention required, because even elements that are automated, we're really talking about semi-automation. As soon as there is any kind of a fault, no one's going to be able to rectify it. 
and things are going to go down. So to my mind, some of those things are quite fragile. But I'm not sure I entirely agree with what you're saying and what clearly, if John Wyndham isn't saying, then Douglas Livingston, who adapted it, is saying about people basically who are doing their jobs, abandoning their, their jobs or, or, you know, what we see in the, in the TV series, basically running for their lives, every man for themselves. Um, and, and it's doctors, you know, this is the, this is the thing. It's people whose whole vocation is about the welfare of others who are suddenly throwing their arms up and saying, actually, what we've got to do is abandon everyone who isn't sighted. And to me, that that just... Yeah, some people in the public services, maybe, but by and large, that's not the ethos of the health service, the fire service, the police service... Um, I'd say educators, I may be biased here. There's a whole whole bunch of people who I think are a lot more uh, compassionate and civic-minded than we are being led to believe in what I think is, a, for the most part, a pretty darn bleak portrayal of human nature. Hmm. Well, I, I will say this. I have never particularly liked post-apocalyptic fiction I don't like what humans are by and large and this sort of scenario whether it in real life would and I think in real life it probably would because I'm cynical um, but certainly in writing because that's what makes for drama uh, always turns out I mean it always brings out the 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 worst in people and when i i try to look at these situations it's the only thing i can do when i'm watching this sort of disaster is to go what would i do and i can't say that personally i wouldn't do exactly what I needed to do. If I if I genuinely believed that this was a worldwide phenomena, I would and let's say my whole family were had gone blind. I would probably go down to the store and load up the van. And I might, I'd probably leave money behind so as to not be thieving just yet in the, the ethos. And I would be thinking about where I could go to get away from the city because the city will be the part, the place where it goes to hell in a handbasket first if that's what's going to happen. So, I, I, you know, it's not a question of whether or not I would want to help other people. But I think I would have to set the scope at some point and say, well, how many can I help? 
with my well, set yes. of skills. And and yes. I certainly I, would not be chaining people up because I'm a good guy and I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure that you help other people, so I'm gonna beat you over the head and I'm gonna chain you to people so that you are good Samaritans because that's not actually the actions of a hero. Well, Which is what I Coker think does. in the context <laughs> in the context of it, but it's it's a right wing criticism of the 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 kind of collectivist philosophy because what we have here is a conception which is based on human nature being basically bad, people being selfish. The only way that you're going to the only the only way that you're going to get away from that is by everyone being able to lift look at look after themselves lift themselves out from the sewer and it 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 becomes purely competitive which is where anyone who has an advantage which is going to be the sighted people leave leave the others behind and they will help each other out not out of collectivism but out of the desire to seek mutual advantage well and, okay and and that and that's what they and uh, that the setup is is then that coker is it, as as it cuz because there's a there's a fair amount of um nationalization that goes on here the seizing of private assets mm. for the public good uh, but coker is is the kind of extreme of that because he's forcing people now i'm not sure i'm ready to accept either of the premises here i'm not sure that i'm willing to accept that human nature is as base and selfish as the right wingers want us to believe doesn't have to be everybody <clears throat> it only needs about that 10 percent of the population need to be that way to well, screw everybody sure. else over well no I can, I can i can see but that but that's particularly why, if they have guns yes and that 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 is why you need to have a state and again that's a left-wing argument it, you're also i'm i'm not the the left wing philosophy is going to be people are fundamentally good and people may may behave in a selfish and immoral way a minority of people and you need to react to that situation and obviously that means you make sure they're not the ones with the guns so you have to be the ones with the guns hence having a, a police force and or army etc etc they in very very simplistic terms there you have the foundation of the state and so I'm not accepting that but I'm also not accepting the premise that the only option available here is the 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 kind of forcing people using the guns and chaining them up to do what they should be doing because it is their moral duty okay so so two things um, one, do you not think that there's a possibility here that, again, if 
the world came to that situation and I made my internal decision and said I had better get the family out and stable and, and do what I can. Do you not think that that is a prudent first step to then what do we do to try to... Because without the Triffids, which is the problem, without the Triffids, you're right. There are people are going to continue on and so you can build up a way to actually help them but being in the that first mode of let's make sure we don't die of cholera um you kind of and and that is ultimately what coker does is and and that's what the group that was originally going in the first place we're going to do i think it's a little hard to tell but you know once you establish a colony, you can start doing good. You can start expanding that. You can start rebuilding it. I don't know that they were necessarily, you know, going to let the world burn. I think they were marshalling their resources so that the world could continue long enough to try to save people. Because, again, they can. we can produce more babies. We just need to be able to survive through the... The thing, and the second part is hmm. when Bill yeah. is when Bill is killed, not Bill killed. When Bill's guards are killed, he doesn't abandon them. He stays yes. with them until it's clear they're dead, and he also doesn't, uh, you know, take on the uh, services of the teenager who's throwing herself at him to get him to stay. Um, so, I mean, Bill behaves in a... We're setting a low bar for him. Well, but yes, I'll agree he clears it. Yeah, I, 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 yeah I'm not saying that's necessarily, but I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a very distasteful offer, frankly, <clears throat> from her part. And it's very cynical from the people who go, hey, maybe you should go, uh, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> give him some company. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Say no more. But I mean, he does stay. He does do that, despite the fact that he could easily leave at any point and that he wants to find Joe, but he doesn't. He, he, feels, he feels human empathy for them. He tries to help them. So, I mean, again, a little less awful than what Coker does to them at that point in the game. But then he also becomes repentant for what he is probably was a little overeager to do. I'm not sure he is repentant. And yes, I, 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 yeah, the portrayal is he's overeager to do it, but I, I'm still like, at least, at least you're helping. And I, I, so I guess, I guess partly my, my question is, what do you think of the performance of John Duttine in this? I've never seen him in anything else to my knowledge. Neither have I. Um, it's a little bit flat. How about that? <laughs> I, I, yeah. I mean, I think so because what what we are what we're describe what we're coming to is that here's a man who is actually supposed to be quite conflicted. He's he's torn because while whilst you say whilst you say all the way all the way through um that all, all the way through that episode where he is looking after the people that Coker has assigned him and staying with them even after he has a chance to leave he's thinking about leaving 
And so the key thing there is the conflict that he feels between his duty to those people and the fact that he feels that it's completely hopeless. And that means he's not he's not the doctor, right? Mm-hmm. He's not someone who is going to stay with every hopeless case. But on the other hand, he's not... He it he's not he's not someone who is just going to be out for himself or quite yeah. as egregious as um, people like uh, David Swift's character uh, Beetle or Beedler or whatever he's called. Um, Beedler, he yeah. was the bald guy that was running that group at the time. Yes, yes. I always think of him as Henry Davenport because uh, he was in Drop the Dead Donkey, uh, which was a fantastic uh, uh, topical satirical TV series set in a newsroom. That's a heck of a name. Uh, well, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the, the, the point about that group was that if you think Coker was over-keen to throw his weight around they were really really um going off on their kind of crazy paranoid right-wing cult (laughs) polygamist you know that there was no reluctance in there whereas clearly that wasn't at any point bill's first thought no, but I mean, Bill and Joe's thought was to get out to the country and, and go right to where they ultimately ended up. They wanted to they wanted to look after their own interests, but they didn't necessarily want to destroy anyone else's or even. You know, if they could if they could offer help without it being too much of a sacrifice for them to to refuse that help, they they mm-hmm. were, you know, moderately willing, but but there's definitely a conflict going on there because I think there there's a real dilemma, and the problem with Bill as a hero in this story, unlike someone like Coker, who is much less about the conflict and much more about just get on and do the thing that you believe to be right. The problem with it is I didn't get that from John Dutton's performance. He just seemed to amble around a lot. I think it's, I think it's buried underneath that beard. Maybe. Indeed. You know, if, if he had less beard, maybe he's, he could emote more. I'm not sure. Um, yeah. He's, I, was, he's... I was wondering about people who were managing to be clean shaven after six years. Where are you getting the razors from guys? Oh, Coker. I mean, I yeah. He they could have still... been, stone sharpening um you know proper old-fashioned cutthroat razors but still seems like possibly not the top priority that's true that i i definitely would say that's not a problem (laughs) but not a problem for bill because they had him bearded from the beginning yeah he just got shaggier and shaggier and joe grew grew her hair she got rid of her joanna lumley and uh and moved on to uh uh something a little more post-apocalyptic there by the end. 
Um, all right, well, let's see. I, I, yeah, he's, he's not great. <laughs> it's like, I don't, I don't want to pick on him. I, he's, I, but he is kind of, he is the single protagonist in this. He's basically in every shot. He has to carry it. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the the comet idea as so well? I guess did that seem credible to you? Comet as a weapon? Not especially, but I didn't. I didn't really worry about it. I, I was kind of. You know, here's a phenomena that happens, and like I say, everyone would go look at it. There's, there's absolutely no doubt that just virtually everyone would go look at that if if you possibly could. And then you go all the way to the end of the story, and suddenly you pop up the idea that says, "Well, you know, maybe this was this was of our own making." Is that? I I find that there is a a group of people sometimes environmentalists um <laughs> that 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 seem to adopt an attitude and that's not all environmentalists but there are people who adopt an attitude that humans are awful the world would be so much better without them um you know we we destroy everything we touch we're we're terrible we're awful blah 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 blah, blah. and I was perfectly fine with that comet being a thing that happened. It's just, it just happened. Space is a dangerous place. Stuff happens. This thing did it. The world went blind. There have been mass extinctions for forever. Who knows? Right? That's fine with it. But by putting it at the end, it it just sort of feels like, frankly, it feels like 80s, zeitgeist to well no it it had to be us destroying ourselves it couldn't be random chance that would never happen we definitely we had to have done it and and i'm i'm i don't know i don't think it fits that's the whole point i mean i I don't i don't know how the point is conveyed in the book obviously i haven't read it but I, i believe it's conveyed exactly the same way towards the very end he goes you know i'm thinking maybe that was uh man made the point the point is it's not a catholic guilt thing or something it's like this is our fault i'm sure this is our fault we we no, did this i i don't i don't think we did it's 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 nuclear weapons i yeah, i don't know i really don't know i i don't get that i i did actually go look for the book um because i just barely managed to get through the serial by last night so that we could we could discuss this today, and I just thought, well, what the heck? I, I'm, I'm sure I have a couple of hours I can just whip through the novel too before we watch it. But uh, <laughs> fortunately, I didn't find it, so therefore I didn't have to. I didn't do that. But I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's written in 1951, so you've got a different. You've got a different attitude towards nuclear weapons in 1951, and you definitely have a different attitude about nuclear weapons in 1951 Europe than you do in 1951 America. Hmm. So, you know, I may be bringing my own 
preconceptions there. I just did not feel like this was a nuclear weapons story. I felt like this was a disaster story that somebody decided that they would try to blame on nuclear weapons. You know, as part of the adaptation. But the but the but, but the, the Triffids, I mean, I the Triffids are definitely our problem. To, yeah, the Triff the Triffids are are a. Uh, the the kind of archetypal, um, not it's it's not the, it's not the bad side, but it's it's the it's the scientists meddling, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's the scientists producing producing something that they once it once it has been created, once the genie is out of the bottle. They can no longer control the consequences. Or we we can no longer now, control the consequences. Now wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not one hundred percent true. And I don't remember whether this is part of the book or not. Okay, but they're very clear about this. They just about wiped out the Triffids. They had just about cleared the planet of Triffids, and then somebody figured out that they were a fuel oil. So greed brought them back. We identified a threat. We cleared it out. It's almost like it's almost I like they polio. They engineered them as a fuel oil. They did. The Soviet Union engineered them as a fuel oil, and then, uh, per this per this narrative, the guy was trying to steal it. His plane got blown up. It scattered the seeds around the world. Nobody outside the Soviet Union, presumably, knew that these plants were the fuel oil or the plants maybe the people in the soviet union were dead that knew they were the fuel oil plants but they talk about the newsreel and and bill's narrative he says you know they were showing up all over the place and we pretty much wiped them all out and then somebody figured out that this was that amazing plant that did the fuel oil thing and suddenly everybody was farming them so i mean this is man's greed brought this one back twice created it amoral scientists and greed so it, it's not not just scientists have the blame on this one. That was that was definitely corporate greed. So, I mean, all, you know, also a, a, a popular theme in 1980s TV. So, but that's I mean that's still the case in the sense of the invention of the atom bomb. Mm-hmm. Without without it, you wouldn't have it. You wouldn't have the atom bomb, but equally, without the kind of paranoia-fueled arms race, it wouldn't be a problem because mm-hmm. no one would build them, even if you right. knew how to do it. Right, you'd have to be you'd have to be crazy, crazy to do that. Indeed. I'll go along with that anyway. You'd have to be crazy to do that. Yes, but uh, yeah. Yes, Doctor Strangelove. <laughs> oh yes, you've seen that recently, haven't you? Indeed, you did a review. Yes, that, that's a that's a definitely a, a, the single most um, salient film about the conservation of bodily fluids I've ever uh, I've ever watched. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, uh, you know one of the funny things I find about this book uh, and uh, well, this serial and the book for that matter is the sort of 
non-event that the Triffids are. They're not in it much. They show up as a sort of, well, the world is a little more dangerous than just people falling downstairs in their flats. And, um, but, you know, they're, in a but way, they're not much of a it's threat. The disease that does, it's the disease that does for people. And you'd think, the, you'd think the Triffids were, maybe I'm attributing mental processes to the Triffids, which I think we're supposed to. Um, you'd think with all the dead bodies all over the place, if, if a Triffid's job is to stand in front of a dead body and let it decompose, you'd think they'd be busy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, another an, a whole other set of questions. I, I appreciate they're asking questions about whether it can hear, whether... You know whether it can think in any sense of that, mm-hmm. but I would also have liked. You know, we 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 kept coming back to the fact that Bill was a a, a former Triffid researcher. Um, what happens when their food supply runs out? The Triffids seem to be multiplying, which was yeah un, unsurprising given the number of. Uh, bodies that had been around but presumably at this point six years later and they've got this compound keeping the triffids out the triffids aren't getting any nutrition but that doesn't seem to be affecting them in any way completely the effects involved in a wilting triffid would have been too much it attacks the effects department too much but that that would be one way to wipe them out. You starve them out. Do they? Do they really need decomposing, decomposing humans? In fact, I think they cows, sheep, or anything contrived. Well, exactly. And so, yeah, why? Why are they going after humans? Because they're evil, which are difficult prey. They're evil. When there are far, far easier prey for them to be feeding on closer at hand maybe it's biomass i mean yes cows are still better what about a cow what about a deer those are those are big not as popular in cities where the triffids were at the zoo so i mean humans are kind of the logical start there well um and and except except what about the other zoo animals or the cats and dogs but if one foxes is one human enough for one triffid because the other thing is, is that they seem to be long? striking people not for themselves. You know, so they go out and they kill, they kill Joe's father and they kill the maid. Well, why aren't there two Triffids sitting there over the maid? God, there's, there's, such, there's such a lot of fascinating questions about the... When, Would you waste your time killing another one? biology, because you've, because you've now got a plant that can move. But when would it move? Because obviously moving is going to have an energy cost for the plant. And if it's just killed a human, and it therefore, I w- I'll use the word no, but, you know, whatever it is, it's, it's evolved in such a way as to be able to kill a human because it wants, because it needs the, the nutrients from the human. Once it's killed the human the human needs to decompose for it to be able to make use of the nutrients. That takes so a while. wouldn't it wouldn't it stay with the human 
Yes, but it seems to go because off and keep killing. And and if you kill at somebody over, if you kill one here in front of you, and then you kill another one, you can't make use of the other one because no. it's going to decompose while the first one is going. So yeah, it, I mean that's just and bad. What, what about competitive behavior in Triffid cu- communities? Because if you're if you're a Triffid and you want a decomposing human, one option for you is to go and sting a human and then wait for it to decompose which is going to take a while another good option is going to find a triffid that's already stung a human a couple of days ago and mm-hmm. take feeding his. off its human and can and therefore you start to get questions like can triffids sting other triffids is the is there some way that triffids can compete amongst themselves yeah, I'm sure that there are lots of really. I, I I would I would think that you could really sit down and think about the triffids for a while, and come up with a fascinating fake biology. Well, yeah, because what there are all sorts of potential evolutionary strategies now for triffids. So, but yeah, swarming around, you know, swarming around the the compound in their thousands seems more like that they are truly intent on wiping out humans. That seems to be a, you know, humans are, not, maybe intent, humans are considered intention. a threat to them. Maybe humans are the only thing that they consider them to be a threat. But that was, that, see, yes, that that is a question. Are they, are they going to behave defensively and you know, you, I want to know the mechanism by which that works because a nettle sting is a pretty is a pretty kind of simple mechanism, really, isn't it? For how you're going to how you're going to protect yourself because ultimately, I'm getting more excited about this. So I'm thinking, let's get Dawkins on the case here. <laughs> it's all about it's all about the gene, isn't it? It's the selfish gene. It, the, the, the Triffid's intent is actually pretty unimportant in terms of the way the Triffid must have evolved. It's being able to pass on its gene. How do but it didn't evolve. Produce? It was engineered. Uh, yes, but you can't just engineer something from nothing. Right, 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 right. Has, How did they get has, the pieces? It has a a, a, a a kind of a family tree, for want of a. We know a they blow. Word. We do know they blow seeds. Yes, and and the nettle thing is not totally. I mean, the reaction um, where Bill goes for the triffid with the fork in that second episode is, and he's just smashing it and smashing it and smashing it long after it's dead. I mean, if you've ever seen me with a nettle that's just stung me, then you'll realise that's pretty realistic. <laughs> I've never actually seen a nettle so <laughs> in real Goodness life. me. You don't get nettles in Arizona? No. Wow. We have poison ivy. Wow. But we don't have nettles. Hmm. I've heard, I've heard of nice. people complaining about nettles, you know, who've come from other places, but no, I, don't, I think it's too hot here. I've been making, I've been making, so I should say, for the benefit of listeners who live in places where there aren't nettles, they're sort of stingy plants. If you touch them, they irritate your skin. It's quite painful, brings up little bumps, and uh, they grow 
all over the place in the UK climate. But you have to touch them to be affected. You have to, to actually touch them at particular times of year because, you know, the the nettle sting fades once they've gone to seed because, as we're saying, they've they fulfilled their role in passing their genes on to the next generation of nettles. Hmm. 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 Yeah. Well. Uh, yeah. We don't have those, but uh, definitely have heard of them. We usually usually hear them called stinging nettles. For percent. Well, that's because it's... not all nettles sting. It is a particular type of nettle. Oh. Okay. Did not know that. Uh Anyhow. Yeah. Yeah, the triffids are fascinating, and they serve just enough of a low-level threat that if we did not have the triffids in this story, I kind of feel like civilization would be back up and running within two years. Really? That, that's, that's kind of my feel. Even <clears throat> though everyone's getting wiped out by this disease? Well, I think once they're dead by the disease, we're okay. Well, I mean, at some point, you know, no you burn left. it a couple of years. Well, you've got all the sighted people who didn't get the disease, except for that one woman. Um, you know, so all of those compounds just kind of need to withstand the burnout of all the decomposing bodies and and but, illness. But, they, but they've they've st- all the infrastructure has has gone. You've got you haven't got the. Oh, I don't think we'd be back to normal, but I think we would be back to having. To what the to what the militia guys were saying, you know, the six or seven years of hard work, because because basically all of your advan- all of your kind of advantages are gone. You're not going to be able to plow your fields with a tractor, or or what mm-hmm. have you. You're not going to be able to to um, use electronic milking machines. You're not going to be able to heat barns for your livestock or any any of that stuff or or for germinating seeds you're right back to basically working solidly hard every single daylight hour there is and if the crops fail you're going to die but we still have books and if you still had and if people bound together in groups instead of isolating them in you know smaller groups but communities then you're going to be able to do those things more efficiently i mean that's what civilization has progressively shown what humans do and how we succeed and so yeah i I think and 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 i suppose one other one other thing and again i felt this was kind of not it, it wasn't necessarily obvious that they had asked themselves the questions about it but the actual resource left over so if if this is civilization at an end and a new civilization must be born, yada, yada, yada. Well, the resource left over from the previous civilization is actually going to be quite considerable. Mm-hmm. So when you are thinking about things like fuel and um, machinery and so forth, the, you know, just the oil that is left lying around in unused vehicles and such like that might be used to power... a a generator if you could keep it going would actually potentially keep you going for decades just because of the sheer numbers of abandoned 
vehicles and and so forth. Mm-hmm. I don't know how fast it evaporates, but you know, at some point, yeah. Well, or or that's you know, or that's stored in heating oil tank, you know, tanks yeah. of kerosene or or what have you on on farms that have been abandoned. Depending, you know, it's all it's it, it, the question is all going to come down to to the numbers and and there are all going to be logistical questions about it, but there are there are ways in which the benefits of the previous civilization are possibly going to be able to give a kickstart to the new one that's mm-hmm. going to see them through actually quite a few years before they're completely on their own or having to do their own thing. Have to figure out how to refine oil on their own, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I, you know, yeah, absolutely. And I think the people who are going to be successful are are those that have somebody in the group that thinks that way. Yes. Who thinks in terms of, you know... Which to me, which to me to this kind first of suggests to bigger groups than 10 people. But then on the other hand, and I'm, I'm going to say I slightly resent this because I'm born and brought up in Brighton. Um, the crazy nut jobs in Brighton who fired at Croker and who are insisting on everyone being in units of 10, etc., etc. I think they probably got that wrong. You don't think Brighton would be the first to <clears throat> return to that? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I... Brighton, I, everyone would be too stoned to get that organized, but anyway. I, I might, you know, <clears throat> I think the first thing that, that crossed... And it, again, it's really hard not to... It's really hard to put in the mindset, but my first thought, and I live in a desert, so keep that in mind my first thought is if this is the problem find an island yes i like the fact <laughs> i like the fact they went to the isle of wight because i was thinking that and and i was thinking that and i was thinking of because these these triffids i was thinking why not build a saltwater moat mm-hmm. i was thinking hang on no you don't need to do that you just have an island because i hadn't thought about the seeds drifting across and i was glad they addressed that but it sounds like triffids take a while to grow. Sure. And 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 I forgot what he said it was, but he said as long as you dock them, so like the ones in the zoo, as long as you dock them every two or three years, yeah, you're they're, they're harmless. And again, it's all about time. It's all about time. Mm-hmm. But it, but it but it is absolutely true. I mean, the reason that Scoma Island has such a thriving colony of puffins is a, an island in southwest wales and it's because there are they're they're, they're burrow dwelling birds and it's because there are no rats on the island mm-hmm. if anyone were to introduce a rat to the island that'd be the end of it the puffet populate so so yeah you would you would expect humans would would be off to the islands and we've got a few good-sized islands around the British Isles where they would be able to um, keep down the population of triffids and basically live... Because the Isle of Wight is a big island. You know, there are several towns on it. Admit, I have no idea how big the Isle of Wight is. 
well, visually in I mind, couldn't, I'd have to look up on I a could, map to see it. But I couldn't, I couldn't tell you exactly. But I'm thinking it's maybe fifteen or twenty miles across. Okay, yeah, that's a good sized island. You could, you could support quite a lot of people there. I assume you can probably grow crops there. Um, but it's not Absolutely. a wind, it's not a windswept rock. As, well, we're as talking some... about the southeast of England, so. But even you know, take the Isle of Man, say, mm. where it's definitely a little bit more rugged, but it's again quite big. Nice fishing, probably coincidentally the size of Brighton and Hove. You know, thirty. You've got yeah, you've got fish, you've got sheep, you, and you can, you can certainly grow crops. It's certainly... and if you had triffids, you'd have uh, cooking oil. Oh, wait, no, that's wrong. <laughs> that's the book. <laughs> you could deep fry sheep strips. Um, <laughs> And vegetables. <laughs> well, you could you could you could certainly produce oil from other crops. I would suggest maybe triffids would be the best choice. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. Maybe not. Uh, anyway, um, <clears throat> yeah. So it, it's fascinating. It's I don't know where this falls on the timeline of post-apocalyptic stories. You know, at some point, if you go back in time. There's going to be the first one, <laughs> right? I mean, in yeah. in any genre, there's there's always the first one that somebody comes up with. I don't think this is it. I, I don't know if I would consider World War of the Worlds to be that, but maybe. Um, but it's certainly mm-hmm. you know is 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 much yes. older than a lot of the crop that that uh, that has just seemed to burgeon over the years. There, there is something, and I, there's something wrong in the human mind that makes them crave these stories. I, I really don't know. I don't know what it is. I, I, I really don't understand it. That the, the is it that they want to see the ugliness of humans come out? Do they, do they feel like we deserve some sort of punishment? And and this is a way of vicariously watching it I, I don't know I, i'm not a fan i enjoy this story i love the premise of the triffids and i wish as we've discussed they were better fleshed out so to speak on on their biology and how it worked and maybe a little more logical and i appreciate that it's kind of at least a hopeful ending that it looks like you know it is it is a matter of waiting out the triffids it's a it's a matter of growing up a new batch of kids, and starting to 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 get the knowledge back and go. This is this is not a living dead film where it's done. You know, anyone who ever dies becomes a zombie. Therefore, there's an infinite supply of <laughs> of of enemies coming at you. You know, I I could envision the Earth being triffid free in fifty to seventy five years, or at least whole whole livable areas just completely devoid of triffids and and rebuilding so but that's a dramatic problem for the story i think because where do you end (laughs) it is kind of a peter out end there isn't it a lot of people complain about especially as especially as they're not going to answer the questions about the either the meteor shower or the disease or anything about all these kind of biological questions we've had about the behavior of triffids or 
their, the capabilities, like can they, all those questions. And like I say, I don't mind unanswered questions, but from a dramatic point of view, it could have ended in a number of different places. And I, I'm not even sure if it wouldn't be a better story if it had done. A hmm. hundred years from now, Five hundred years from now, in, we think in it the future. Have, I mean, it, it certainly. I mean, it certainly could have carried on. It, you know, there was. Look, let's let's pretend like, you know, but by I'm the time people are getting asking the questions properly, that that we will never find out if that comet was um an atomic weapon. That that the the MOD or whichever whichever organization put that thing up there collapses burns down the records are lost they're irretrievable that that no one ever finds out what caused that comet a hundred years from now how many religions and how many schools of thought will have evolved up over that divine judgment handed down on humans because i think i think that's, I think that's really interesting I I'm, I I think there is I think the dramatic structure of the story is challenging because as you say it's not it's not the kind of um all out wipeout there is there is a scenario envisaged and then that has consequences in the novel or or the the, the series presumably the novel takes some time to explore a, a period afterwards, but it's almost arbitrary where it stops. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, if if I were if I were asked to do a, a, an adaptation of this story, I think I would be very tempted to plunder the structure from. There was a, a TV series over here about ten years ago, which was it was the, the, the title of it was literally Five Days, and it's nothing to do with science fiction. Okay, it was a drama about the uh, abduction of some children and the the police investigation into the abduction, and. The five days were because each of the five episodes of the series dealt with a day in that missing persons case, but they weren't consecutive days. It was okay. like the, fir- the first day you actually see uh, the circumstances around the abduction and you see the, the uh, police uh, attending and interviewing everyone and so on. But the rest of it is is kind of insights into what's going on at various points they like day three day 28 day 33 day 79 and obviously part of the 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 job for the narrative is to fill in the gaps a little bit for the viewer but you're 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 kind of picking on days in the story when there is actually something to talk about and 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 it help it gives you a picture of everything that's come in between and i would nick that i think in the sense of I'd want to do the day of the meteor shower 
Right. And maybe day three, you know, after the meteor shower, but then maybe jump forward to a year after afterwards and five years afterwards. And like you say, it would be quite interesting to go, I don't know about 100 years, but an entire generation afterwards to look to look at and explore what had happened, what people had found out, what myths they had built up, what what reactions and and how how people had progressed. Because I think unless you do that, it just it it, it becomes a kind of endless narrative that really has mm. has no structure to it. This is the beginning of a whole new story of mankind in a way so yes it's it's the beginning not the end yes maybe that's the difference this is a beginning not an end so yes Hmm. and 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 all the questions we're asking you kind of want you want to see how they play out so you need glimpses at least of what the consequences are in 10 years time 20 years time and the rest of it yeah. Um, I have a couple of things. Um, one, and I went back to check this because it's, I remember this from the book. And so it wasn't obvious to me in the TV show, but it does appear to be true. And since it wasn't obvious to me and I knew about it, I will, I will pass this on. The military guy at the end, I think it's Torrance is his name. Right with the mustache and who's giving his little speech. Did you recognize him from elsewhere in the story? No. He was the guy who opened shot on Bill and his chain gang and walked up and shot the guy in the head. Yeah. It's the same actor. But because they had his hair dyed red or whatever it was, it wasn't obvious that that's the same sadistic guy but because of it in the book bill has even more reasons to distrust this guy yeah because he he recognizes him as as that as that guy which i don't know if that would realistically happen i don't recognize people i met yesterday oh i suppose if i saw him gun somebody (laughs) down in cold blood maybe i'd have a little better uh mind of them and the other and the other thing that I remember from the book that didn't, if it did happen, it's because I don't understand geography of Britain uh, well enough. But in the book, the religious lady, when Bill and Coker left, she says, well, uh, the other group went this away, pointing to the right, when in fact she knew they went that away, pointing to the left. She intentionally sent them on a wild goose chase. Okay. And I don't think that... I don't think that is in any way conveyed in this story. But she intentionally did that to try to, you know, maybe make them change their mind and come back to God. Um, in, in the, I'm not sure what that has to do with the geography. Well, I mean, I suppose that if... Uh, if she said, well, he went, they went to Wiggum and, and then we later find out that they went to, to Salisbury. I don't know if those are in different directions or not. I, I don't, I don't know if you, you as somebody who 
knew <laughs> the geography. You know, okay, let's say she said, yeah, I think they headed over to Wales. And then we later find out, no, we, we told her we were heading to Scotland. I could kind of go, uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, she lied. But I, I don't see think she... I don't, uh, so, right, yes. Right, but in, in the book, I, I think they, it's, it's more clear that she, she deliberately misled them. And that... Because, you know, they needed... Because that's how God works. He lied to people uh, about stuff for their own good. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, 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 think I, I, she to- I think she told them they'd gone to Dorset and actually they'd gone to the Isle of Wight. Yeah, I don't know. And maybe they went to Dorset first and did. You know, I, I honestly don't. It's just it's a non thing in this in this episode. It makes her a little it makes her a little nastier. Uh, in in a way, well, my opinion, nastier. Yeah. But I suppose you know, trying to save their souls there. Um. Anyway, I uh, I don't know that I have anything else. This is a this is a long one, but that's okay because it was a long serial. So uh, or series, as the as the the case may be. Anything else, uh, Simon? No, I I have nothing else. But I'm I'm going to mention since we were talking about post-apocalyptic science fiction um, that the earliest uh, in the genre may be The Last Man, which I haven't read, by Mary Shelley, published in 1826. But she did another book? (laughs) Didn't she do (laughs) enough damage with Frankenstein? Oh, no, please tell me no. No, no, if that's... If she did this genre too... First off, their scientists are evil and they, they tamper with things they're not supposed to and everything they touch will destroy the world. That's Frankenstein. And and I'm sure you've heard me rang on about that one because that is so pervasive in the in the in the, the mm-hmm. zeitgeist of the world. That's her fault one hundred thousand percent. If she came up with the last What's it called? The Last Man? The Last Man, yeah. The Last Man. If she came up with a genre of post-apocalyptic nonsense, I am... She is way down my list on popular people. That's all I got to say. I'm going to look that up. I'm going to I'm gonna see if I can... I, I want to read it now, I have to say. I kind of do, too. I, I And I have... But she found the time to write both of these and travel with the Doctor, so pretty impressive. <laughs> so are you going to get the big finished Night of the Triffids now? No, <laughs> I've, I've, I feel I've had enough. I'm not. I'm not going to track down the uh, the film. I I might watch the more recent adaptation if it popped up on my screen. I guess, um, hmm. but uh, I'm not in a hurry for any more Triffids. <laughs> the nineteen the the nineteen fifties one, the movie, the sixty two film, sixty two. Okay, what I remember about that is that the guy who stars in it what I remember is that I kept thinking he was Sean Connery now admittedly when I was younger I had trouble differentiating Sean Connery from a lot of people so (laughs) he was always the sort of generic Bond guy (laughs) but that's a that's another story people who aren't Sean Connery uh, yeah, there are quite a few people who are not Sean Connery, but there's some. I think it's his voice. I think it's How his is Keel. Ju- 
his... Harry Keel. I I think his voice may have been very reminiscent of it. I'm not I'm not sure why because I haven't seen that film. In you know something that's no doubt the first place I've ever seen Triffids. The sixty-two film. There's no doubt. See, I, I was, saw that first. Yeah, absolutely. I was, go- I I was going. I was it. going to ask you when you were when you were talking about bookshops. I had it in my mind to ask you, and then and then the thought slipped away. So you so you right. Your first. I'm sure I must have. Triffid experience was was that. So I've I've just discovered, courtesy of Wikipedia, another nice little trivial Doctor Who connection, which is that also appearing in the nineteen sixty-two film mm-hmm. was. Caroline Ford. Oh, she could have been playing Susan. She could have been. She was playing a character called Bettina, who I don't remember in this one. Uh, no, yeah, I don't remember one in this either. But we're talking about a year before Doctor Who, so could be where she got the job from. Well, I'm sure they would have been aware of it. Yeah. Well. There is, a, there is a Doctor Who connection with this serial, in fact, as well, because if you notice the name of the producer, um, da- David Maloney. Maloney. Maloney, yeah. Yeah, Blake who, Seven. Oh, I didn't know he'd done Blake Seven, but he, he did direct a fair old number of Doctor Who serials from, uh, I think it was The Mind Robber was his first one. Mm-hmm. Um, War Games, Talents of Wang Chiang, so quite a few um, pretty, pretty top-notch serials. Yeah. Genesis of the Daleks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, I, I hear, see his name quite a lot um, on on things. I don't know that I could have pinned them down to specific stories, but you obviously looked them up. So <clears throat> that's cheating. Re- <laughs> research is cheating. <laughs> I've looked him up because I recognised his name, but I will admit I didn't in my head have the names of all the serials that he had directed. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not Toby Haydoki, you know. Yes. <laughs> all right. Well, Simon, thank you for joining me. My pleasure, as always. And listeners, I hope you uh, have enjoyed this uh, traipse through the Garden of Triffins, and uh, I hope you'll uh, join us all again next time on Fusion Patrol. You've been listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. Find out how you can be a sponsor and get early access to all episodes and more at patreon.com slash fusion patrol. Come join the conversation on Facebook or Twitter. All episodes are available at fusionpatrol.com. Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf. This has been a Lone Locust production.